another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables. Without a parable, he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Our gracious Father, how thankful we are for this passage of Scripture which gives us hope, which is glorious in its revelation and its promise and in its king. And we pray in that great king's name that you would send your spirit upon the preaching of the word and that you would open our eyes that we might see through the eyes of faith and ears that we can hear and hearts that will be fertile for the seed to be planted deep in that soil and bring forth much fruit. Lord, be glorified in this time as we offer up our worship to you, even in this time of preaching and the ministry of the word, and that you would be glorified in our midst to apply this message to us individually and even as a church corporately. Encourage us in these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> We've been considering the kingdom parables in this 13th chapter of Matthew. And when we back up from the context and began to take notice more of the forest rather than investigating the individual tree for the moment. We look back at a distance and we ask ourselves, what is the main theme of the Scriptures? And if you had to summarize an answer to that question, what is the main theme of the Scripture? How would you state it? I would suggest an answer similar to this. The main theme of Scripture is the kingdom of God through God's Son, Jesus Christ, for the glory of God. And throughout the Old Testament, we see this promise of God's coming kingdom through this promised seed of the woman, which would then triumph over the serpent. And as the Scriptures unfold this great plan of God, we have promises that God Himself would then come and set things right here on this earth that have been wronged. And God's promised Messiah was the hope of Israel, but He would also be the hope of all of the nations and the Gentiles. So that when this Jesus that we now know was born, the Messiah, this long-awaited King, arrived and the kingdom was inaugurated in the presence of the king. And here was God in this child. And as he grew, he entered into his public ministry and he <clears throat> declared and preached the message that the kingdom has come near. And the kingdom of God did arrive because the presence of the king had arrived. And the very work of redemption and dealing with sin by taking sin upon himself and dying on the cross as the propitiatory sacrifice to appease and satisfy the wrath of God against sin, against us sinners. Jesus then arose on the third day and his coronation day was when he was crowned the king and began his reign on the earth. 
He ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of God, and he sent his spirit to empower his church with the keys of the kingdom and equip them with the gifts and the power and the ministry of his Holy Spirit to advance his kingdom, which will cover the entire globe, and it will continue to be extended until he comes back and delivers that kingdom up to his Father, all to the glory of God. And this is the mystery that has been hidden in the ages past, but now has been revealed, as Ephesians 3 would tell us, this this mystery that now the church is living out, that even the angels behold the manifold wisdom of God as they behold the church. And those same angels that are watching and learning are also assisting behind the scenes and aiding us in ways that we do not see, but helping, ministering to us and advancing the kingdom here on this earth because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. This kingdom is not something that we are still waiting for. The kingdom has come. It has arrived. It is here. It is advancing. It is growing. It is real. But what is the nature of that growth? And that's what the Lord focuses on now in these two parables before us today. And there are some principles from these parables that are so helpful for us today as we consider our work and our ministry and church planting and and missions They're helpful to those of you that God may call to be missionaries or church planters. They're helpful for us who support such and what to look for, how to set our expectations, how to measure or not growth of the kingdom. And we are in an entire chapter of what we refer to as the kingdom parables, seven parables that express the very nature of the kingdom because there was so much confusion Of that matter in the context and expectation of the Jews to which Jesus ministered in his day. But that confusion still persists today. Even 2,000 years after that kingdom has been inaugurated. Even among conservatives and evangelicals. So it does behoove us to understand these things. You have to remember that Matthew had given these parables on the heels of two chapters. You might know that, remember that Matthew is not arranging his content in necessarily chronological form, but in more of a theological form. And we have two chapters that just preceded this, where the response to the kingdom was anything but notable. Here is this long-awaited Messiah King, and the kingdom of God has come near, and there was so little response, even in the midst of great miracles, where the people themselves said, we have not seen anything like this. These miracles that validated the message, and they validated the messenger, and yet, how can we account for so little response to the King who preached perfect messages And that's what the first parable is helping us to understand. Well, there's different soils upon which that seed had fallen. 
The soils were the hearts into which the word was sown, but only some soil was fertile to receive the word. And yet even in that part of the field where there was fertile soil and there was great growth and fruit that was fruitful, after a while of that fruitful field, we began noticing that in those places of great harvest and fruitfulness, there is also evidence that there is some among that which is not genuine growth, and that's where the second parable helps us with our expectations and understanding the nature of this kingdom growth. Because where fruitful fields exist, they will always be oversown with tares. And yet this oversowing is deliberate, it's malicious, in an attempt to ruin the crop of fruit and to bring confusion. So at this point, you can imagine what these disciples who were Jews and who were long awaiting this Messiah along with their fellow Jews. You can probably imagine what their spirits may be like. After so little response that they had been observing, coupled with the two parables, they were probably getting a little discouraged about the great kingdom that they had longed for. It wasn't how they had pictured it. There were expectations of this great kingdom that may have been a little deflated at that point. And so this is why our Lord gives these two parables next. It follows those initial two parables. And so as we then begin in these two parables to unpack them, but I would like for us to do it in the context. So keep in your mind the link to the context which then just precedes them, the poor responses that these disciples were witnessing to the the presentation of the gospel and the kingdom message and the nature of the kingdom's citizens along with the counterfeits that the enemy would plant among them. And here we have two parables. Unlike the previous two parables, we have no divine interpretation for these two. But these are given back to back and In some sense, we can see that they're similar to one another. Like Joseph's dreams of the corn and the cows, there's a a repetition and a comparison given there, and we can come to an interpretation. So it is clear for any reader reading these two parables that it has to do with kingdom growth. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that starts small and grows to a great tree. The kingdom of God is like a leaven which is hidden within a loaf of meal, and then it leavens the whole thing. There is this theme of growth, and that is the main point that we're going to have to keep sharply in focus. The kingdom growth is not only a certainty, but we also read something of the nature of how it grows. And this is for uh, important for anyone going into Christian ministry, for churches that support Christian ministry, how God may call, because we have to have the right expectation and an understanding of the nature of God's kingdom. How does the kingdom grow? What is the nature of it? That's our focus here this morning around these two parables. 
Because by the outward appearances, it's not really revealed early on if anything is happening. And if you ever happen to be a church planter or in the mission field, you may be coming back to thinking about these parables in a couple of decades when you're not seeing the kind of growth that you were expecting or hoping for. And so how do we interpret these things? Let's begin as we see that first parable and consider that for just a moment because Jesus now then points their attention to a mustard seed. And he considers the mustard seed, and he says there, it's like a mustard seed. The kingdom is like this mustard seed, which is the smallest of all the seeds. Now Jesus, when he says that this mustard seed is the smallest of all the seeds, he's not speaking in absolute terms as a botanist, explaining that the mustard seed is the smallest of all the known seeds. That's not what's going on here. It's not his context. He is saying that the mustard seed is the smallest of all of the seeds similar to its kind. He's speaking in terms of a Jewish framework of agriculture. And in that context, he's saying that the mustard seed is the smallest of the garden kinds of plants, like the herbs, as some of those translators would translate it. And in that class, it's the smallest of its kind. It's very small. Now, he's not saying it and making a point where his audience is going to then contend. Well, I could think of something smaller than that. No, in fact, they would have all nodded their heads in agreement with their frame of reference in the context in which he's given this parable. A mustard seed itself is about one to two millimeters in size. Compare that with a grain of salt, which is about a third of a millimeter. Thank you, Larry. (laughs) It's about a third of a millimeter. So today at lunchtime, uh, your children have got my permission under your leadership to pour some salt out on the table or in their hand and take three grains of salt and look at them. The three grains of salt put together in a clump would be about the size of a mustard seed. That's how small it is. It's really small. That's the point. And the point is that the nature of the kingdom grows. It begins in, in, in an almost imperceptible small way. Like a mustard seed. But however, when it is fully grown, it becomes larger than all of the other garden plants. All of the other herbs. And it becomes a small tree. In fact, on average, a mustard tree is said to grow somewhere in the average of 6 to 20 feet. I know there's a lot of mustard bushes that are a bit larger than uh, what we think of as our normal herbs, but some can grow to 6 to 20 feet, and in some ideal conditions, they can grow as large as 30 feet high with a canopy as wide as they are tall. Pretty significant for a garden herb. We grow herbs in pots on our back porch, and there we have basil and mint. And I can't imagine a tree just springing up in the midst of our deck in the back. Well, that's exactly the the point that he's trying to get at. Here, the teaching is that the, the mustard seed, which begins in the smallest of terms, 
and the most imperceptible way becomes in the end the very largest of them all. It's the largest of anything in its class. It has the largest of all of the endings. And that's the point. Imperceptibly small to the largest and grandest of all endings. That's like the kingdom. There are some other considerations in this parable that actually have given some trouble in the interpretation, and that's the birds that come and nest up into the branches once this kingdom is flourishing. The birds of the parable have created a bit of controversy for some interpreters, as do each of these parables as they consider the individual parts. But I think if you keep the main point in view, it will be helpful here. The main point of these two parables is kingdom growth. Let that presupposition govern the interpretation. But let me give you two very popular interpretations of these birds. First of all, one interpretation would see these birds as evil. They're referring back to the first parable and say that first parable is precedent setting as the birds would come and pluck up or eat the the seed that is fallen by the wayside. And they would see the birds as evil. They would then come and shelter themselves in the mustard trees, but they're not a part of the tree itself, and yet they're attached to it, so the, the, the application is beware, beware. Watch out for these things, kind of like the, the tares among the weeds. I don't believe that is the correct interpretation. I don't believe the first parable is precedent setting for the others because we've already seen that uh, the imagery changes from the first parable to the second parable. The first parable, we see that the people are, the soil are the people and the people's hearts. But in the second parable, we see they are the seed. And so there's a difference in changes. Another interpretation is that some people would interpret and see that these birds are symbolic of all the Gentile nations that will come to profit from God's use of Israel to advance his kingdom. Or perhaps maybe a corollary to that particular interpretation, like the nations that benefit from the growth and the character of the kingdom of God. There could be some merit here. In other words, anywhere that the gospel grows and flourishes in a particular nation or in a particular culture, that culture, as the gospel produces fruit and begins to grow in that place, the very context and the culture of that place will change and the people of that place will be benefited from it. Much unlike how we've observed in our nation. We are living in some of the benefits of the gospel, some of the kingdom that has grown. In fact, every culture where the gospel has penetrated and taken root and produced fruit, that culture advances to a greater degree of a higher culture than it was before. Anywhere that the gospel has then departed, the culture begins to go back down. And so we need to consider that's a possibility here. In fact, the Bible does give some cross-references, and some of your Bibles may have a cross-reference to passages like Daniel 4. And Daniel 4 is when uh, 
um, the image of Nebuchadnezzar's dream was likened to this great tree and his kingdom had grown up and it was a great powerful tree so that the birds came and nested in it. There in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the, the tree was him and his kingdom and it grew very large and powerful. In Ezekiel 17, the Lord speaks about his future kingdom And he will take a sprig from Israel and he will plant it and it will grow into this large majestic tree. It will bear fruit and the birds will come and make their nest in it. And some say that Jesus is borrowing from that passage as he's forming this parable here. And that, that could be the case. But I think the point needs to be clearly made and our attention needs to be on the main point and that is the kingdom is certain to grow into a large, majestic thing. From the least imperceptible beginning to the largest and grandest of the end of it all. The growth of the kingdom will be substantial, so substantial that the nations and cultures will come to benefit in the culture of the fruit of the kingdom. There's good application there because we should not be borrowing from the world to see the kingdom benefited. We should not borrow their applications, their principles, their ways, their methods. But rather the culture of the kingdom should be that which permeates and grows and builds so that the world itself becomes blessed because of the kingdom, not the other way around. Is that not the promise given to Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed because of The blessing God has given to Abraham, will those not who bless Abraham be themselves blessed? In so many ways in the church, we have this exactly backwards. We think we have to be relevant to the world and cater to the world and use the world system, the world culture and the world's. We think that the church benefits from the world and is exactly the opposite of that. Anything that the world has that can be benefited from, they borrowed from our worldview. They have gotten it because of the church to begin with. And now in a generation or two after the fruit has flourished and all of our fathers have given great sacrifices to get the fruit where it is, we now feel like we have to take from the world and bring it back into the church. And it's absolutely upside down. Jesus wants us to get the point. What starts off with the smallest of beginnings has the largest of all endings. What is true for the whole church since its inception is also true for new ministries and new church plants, mission work. Because, trust me, we can grow weary. And how slow the progress can seem. Or how little response we observe to the gospel in places that we labor for long periods of time. We can grow discouraged with seeing so little genuine growth. And here's the thing. If it's the genuine article. If it is the truth. And it is given And it is sown. It will have the smallest of beginnings. But from it will come the largest possible endings in the future. You wait and you wait and see. Jesus will reign everywhere. 
And you will see it. And that's the teaching here. And what a glory and what a privilege to be a part of the certainty of this kingdom growth anywhere on any portion of the earth because it is fact that that is what's going to happen. That's what Jesus says. The end is sure, may I say it, the end is irresistible. That's God's grace. That's his power. That's his plan. That's what he is going to do. That's what makes him happy. It's what glorifies him. Well, how is this going to happen? And that's the next parable. See, he puts these two growth parables back to back, and now he's going to show us how this is going to happen. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman takes and she hides it in three measures of meal so that when it does its work, the entire lump has been influenced, affected, and leavened. Now about this parable, there have also been some very popular and wrong interpretations, even among conservative people about this. I think it behooves us to at least consider One that's probably had the most influence, and that is a teaching that would hold that the leaven, when you, anytime you see leaven in the Bible, it represents an evil, corrupt influence. And there's a presupposition that then is carried into this kingdom parable. Interpreters of this view will point out that the leaven was forbidden at Passover because they could not leaven the bread, and they had to eat unleavened bread for seven days. It was forbidden in the meat offerings. Jesus warned against the leaven of the Pharisees, and Paul says, get out the leaven and make it be a new lump. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So on the basis of passages like that, then people will make the conclusion that any time leaven is expounded or or shown in the Scriptures, it is this meaning of this evil, corrupt influence. And they insert that into this kingdom parable. But if we're going to be very logical about that insertion, we have to read it like this. The kingdom of heaven is like an evil, corrupt influence. Now, I think you know what direction that's going. That's pretty uncomfortable to even think about the worthiness of that interpretation. If you took that position, you would have to say the kingdom of God will conquer everything with evil. But the presupposition is off from the very beginning. The trajectory of the interpretation is right there at the beginning of how you think about leaven. Because while it is true that leaven is sometimes a symbol of evil, corrupt influence... It is not exclusively that used in Scripture, even in the Exodus narrative. However, let's challenge that. It does not mention anything about the leaven being evil. Why were they to eat unleavened bread? Well, they were in a hurry. (laughs) They were to eat in haste. There was not time for the leaven to do its work, and that was part of the symbol that they had to understand. This was a hasty meal because of their deliverance out of Egypt into the land of promise. We do have four Levitical offerings where leaven was disallowed, but not because it was a symbol of evil. 
That wasn't the point there. We're inserting, we're isogeting back into the Scripture, something that the Scripture doesn't reveal, because we also have leaven that is actually um, prescribed for the thank offering. We have leaven as a part of the Feast of Pentecost. And we have to think through that one a little bit, right? Because we know what Pentecost is about. Leavening is a part of Pentecost. So what's the, the right interpretation here? The wording of the parable itself should be noted here. A woman took leaven and she, what does it say she did it? She what? She hid it. She hid it in the meal. And that's how the growth of the kingdom works. The kingdom growth works as the word is planted and hidden in the thing that is to be leavened. Let's stop and connect the dots here for just a moment. The previous two chapters, in chapters 11 and 12, were chapters dealing with the various responses to the nature of the kingdom. And, and this chapter of kingdom parables are to help us to understand the bewilderment and the misunderstandings and the opposition that Jesus faced in those last two chapters. Even the chapter started off in chapter 11 with John the Baptist having these, being bewildered and having doubts. And he sends disciples back to Jesus, says, you know, are you the one or are we to look for another? He was bewildered because what he was viewing on the outside is not what his expectation was of the king and the kingdom. The Jews in general were looking for a spectacular beginning of this kingdom. With swords a-clashing and feet a-running to the swift beat of the drums. Let's have a movement, they were thinking. Even Jesus' mother expressed in that chapter 12 some of her her misunderstandings. And Jesus' brothers would say, if you're the Messiah, then show yourself publicly. What they were meaning is, let's have a show of it, brother. Jesus teaching to all that expectation is to say that the kingdom is like leaven that is taken and hidden deep within the loaf that is to be completely leavened. It begins in a small way. It begins in a hidden way. In Luke chapter 17, which I can think that gives a little bit of exposition and explanation here. Luke 17, 20 and verse 21, the scripture says, Now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered and said, The kingdom of God does not come with observation. Nor will they say, See here, or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you in you. Jesus was questioned by the leaders, the religious leaders of the day, because they're not seeing it. 
That's why they asked him what he did. But it's not with signs that are to be observed. It's not with banners that will be flying. It's not with royal processions that will be parading. It's not a coronation ceremony where people will spend the night on the street corner waiting to buy tickets on the next morning that they might go and see and be a part of this great experience and spectacle for which after weeks they will be decrying and telling of the story of this wonderful time of the coronation. As time gets a little closer and Elizabeth keeps hanging on, there's some anticipation across the pond of a new king about to be coronated. Anticipation not always with great enthusiasm. Nonetheless, a lot of eyes will come out to see and be televised and many will watch. But that is not the nature of how God's kingdom grows. None of that. The kingdom of God is in you. It's not saying that the Pharisees themselves who were questioning him that had the kingdom. No, they were unregenerate. But he's contrasting something that is on the outside that is observable with something that is inside and hidden that will end up working its way to the outside over time until the very thing in which it is placed is completely influenced by it. That's the leavening principle. That's how the kingdom of God grows today. That's how the kingdom of God grows in our ministry. That's how the kingdom of God will grow in new mission fields. That's how the kingdom of God will grow in a church plant. It's not about the marketing procedures. It's not about beating the drum. It's not about all of the tactics that the church uses. It is in you. It's not as much about what we are doing as much about who you are. And what the grace of God is working in you and through you to do of His goodwill and pleasure. That's how it grows today. It's like taking leaven, hiding it in the thing that is to be influenced until it advances and grows from the inside out. Person by person, unseen and out of sight. That's how you share the gospel. When you share the gospel, when you give a good influence, when you provide a good example, when you do a good deed or a good work for Christ's sake, that is the influence. That's the leavening. And folks, every single time you do that, it has an effect upon those that are around you. If you see it or not, and you have to take Christ's words at it, you have to take the biblical promises for it, and you have to trust that the kingdom of God is so working this way, and it will produce the very effect that God sent it forth. You be faithful. You do not lose heart. You continue the work that He's given you to do. There will come a time when there are outward expressions of the inward spiritual kingdom and even your desire to share the gospel or your opportunity to speak a conversation to the glory of Christ with someone is that outward expression of the inward kingdom. There's the influence. See, there's another way to raise and advance a kingdom, right? Is there not? way most people are familiar with. You go raise an army, you gird on your sword, you coerce people 
That was the mistake of the Spanish Inquisition. That's the mistake of many other religions today. That's the mistake of Islamic religion. Coercing people, taking it by storm with the might of the sword. Not from the inside out, but from the outside, which never affects the end. But Jesus starts his kingdom in the smallest, most unsuspecting beginnings, and it will eventually have the largest of possible endings, larger than you can possibly imagine, grander than you can possibly think. It is glorious. But along the way, it happens like leaven, hidden deep within a loaf, but doing a work. In the end, how much of that loaf will be affected? With just a little leaven, it's going to continue to work until the whole lump is leavened. That's the nature of leaven. Folks, the train is leaving the station. And it's going to arrive, and you better be on that train. And God would say, you can be on it or you can be off the train, but this train is going where I have determined it to go. And I have determined that it is my son that will reign over the entirety of the earth, for the earth is mine and the fullness thereof, says the Lord. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come and worship me, says the Lord. That's the train, and you better be on it, because it's determined, it's sure, and it's absolutely going to happen. And that's what the parable's teaching. Not everyone will be converted, but everyone will be subjected. Every knee shall bow. Christ's kingdom will spread from shore to shore. It will begin in the smallest of beginnings as it has already done. And it has grown, which it will continue to do. And when a new church or a new ministry starts, it does the same kind. It goes through the same pattern of growth. Sometimes for years and decades before the smallest fruit begins to be noticed, but it is being leavened. That place is being affected. Sometimes ministers minister in places that are so hard that they never see the fruit in their own lifetime or very little of it. But today we have an entire countries that have been affected because of the faithfulness of a few that had leavened an entire loaf. As Thomas Chalmers says, whatever your vision is for God, your vision is too small. I think he had a little bit of an understanding that sometimes we limit ourselves with. Christ's kingdom will spread from shore to shore. It has been growing since Christ sent the spirit upon the church and the church has continued to do his work. He's empowered the church and he says all power and authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now go because you will be successful. Go because this is what pleases God. Go because this is God's plan. Get on the train for I have determined my son will reign over all the earth and you can be a part of that advancement. You got to keep these truths. You got to keep these principles. You got to keep these facts when you are discouraged about your influence. In your ministry. And every one of you have a ministry. And every one of you have an influence. To every stranger you meet on the street. To every person you come in contact. There is influence. 
There are things that you are seeing that are going on that you cannot see. Things that are going on behind the scenes. And if you can live faithful to Christ in everything of who you are and the holy life that you live. You just leave the results to God. But there are things going on that your eyes do not see. You can sit there and look at a piece of bread that it had yeast in it for a, quite a while and you may not see any results. But you didn't see the yeast, but God is working. You're effective. Sometimes you can seem so impotent and weak and helpless, but that's not what God says your testimony for Christ is. You keep sowing and you can count on it and fruit will come. And God will bring the harvest He intends. And nothing will stop it. Nothing will stop it. Christ will reign until God the Father has put all of His enemies under His feet. That is a promise that the Father made the Son. That is what Christ has sent us forth with, with victory and hope and glory. So as the kingdom grows... And there's not many responses at the present time that the disciples could see. And Jesus begins to tell them about the different soils, and that's part of the reason for it. And even in a fruitful field, there are still tares that are deliberately sown by the enemy there. And there's these challenges, and this is not happening in the way the disciples can see it. Now he says, oh, it will happen, it is going to happen, if only the disciples could see now. They finally began in the power of the Spirit to see through the eyes of faith the way Abraham saw that city that was not made with human hands, but that which was made by God. And they began through the eyes of faith to see the glory, a taste of it, however. And that is what he wants us to see, that we would labor today for that which he has promised. And we govern our lives and the decisions that we do today for that which we know is certain in the future. That's being a faithful steward. Knowing that your labor is not in vain as you labor in the Lord. Be encouraged, people. Be encouraged. If the Spirit of God is living in you, you are influencing everybody around you for the sake of Christ and the gospel. What a great privilege that is. Let's be thankful to God for that power. Our gracious Father, how thankful we are for these two parables that have now set our minds at ease that the power of God is not only advancing, but it is working from the inside out in ways that we often do not see, but it will have its end in affecting the entire lump. The kingdom will grow from the least imperceptible, smallest beginnings all the way to the grandest, largest possible endings that could be achieved. Lord, here we are 2,000 some years later after the beginning of this kind of growth here upon the earth. And yet we marvel at how much progress has been made and yet how much there is yet to go. Keep us from being discouraged or weary in well-doing. Help us to gird up the loins of our minds and be about the kingdom, knowing that there are evil, malignant forces trying to plant the tares among the good field. And so we pray that you would keep the evil one away from this congregation and keep us fruitful for the sake of Christ. 
We pray if there is any here today that has not subjected themselves to the Lordship of Christ, that the Spirit would work and bring him or her under the Lordship of Jesus, saving him or her from her sins, and saving to the uttermost. Lord, we are thankful to be a part of this great kingdom where you have taken us out of darkness and put us into light and giving us an inheritance, seating us together with Christ in the heavenlies. And we know that your plan is victorious and triumphant, and we pray that in the times of tribulation and trials and discouragements that you would encourage us with these covenant promises and what your plan is and how it's working so that we would not fret or be discouraged. All to the glory of our great King Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.